1976, there was a big earthquake in Guatemala and they had to do a ton of surgeries on a ton of different patients. I think it was about 150 patients over 36 hours and every single one of them received ketamine. And in the environment like Guatemala with that many patients getting that many surgeries, they just don't have enough equipment to monitor every patient in like a PACU, like a post anesthesiology care unit. They, they, they can't hook them up to a monitor and check their caponography and oxygenation and blood pressure. They just don't have the ability to do that in that type of setting with disaster medicine. But they perform all these surgeries and they really don't have any problems because they're able to just be observed. Because like I said before, you have that dissociation, but it's preserving the autonomic function. So you're still getting respiratory drive, you're still getting oxygenation, and usually something really simple like just opening the airway is gonna solve any issues that you do have. I'm your host, Nick Carson. I've worked as a professional firefighter, paramedic, and currently as a flight medic in New England. Welcome to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. Today, I figured we would take a deep dive into ketamine. I think this is something that is really going to appeal to both our medical providers that listen to the show and people who are not in the medical field because it's something that's been in the news pretty prevalently. So I was talking to a guy at work recently, and he mentioned that the last few episodes of the show that we've done, they haven't really been as clinical as they used to be. They're a little bit more experiential, and we're listening, hearing some stories and talking to some really interesting people, but we still want to do a little bit of medical learning and talk a little bit about science once in a while. So I figured we'd kind of flex our muscles and try that out today. So um, we're going to talk about the history of ketamine. We're going to talk about how it's being used right now, some problems that we've seen with it in our society and why that's happening. And then we're going to talk about the future, what's going on um, and up and coming in the area and how people are using ketamine in some new and interesting ways. So for those of you that don't know, it's okay if you don't know what ketamine is and it's okay if you have a lot of experience with it, but we're going to dive into some of the history and hopefully even people who are experienced might even pick something up from it. So basically, ketamine is a derivative of phenylcyclidine, which is like PCP is what we all think of. And this has actually been around for a really long time. Um, the article we're going to be kind of referencing here that we're going through is called The Use of Ketamine During Procedural Sedation. It's written by a couple of providers from Duke University Medical Center, uh, Tanya Jolly and Heather McLean. I'll put it in the show notes so you can kind of see where some of this information is coming from. I'm not making it up. I'm, I promise you, I'm just walking you through it. Um, but but it's been around uh, since like the late 1950s. So in the 1950s, PCP was synthesized and they were using it as an anesthetic. But in a shocking turn of events, I'm sure you can imagine this, the delirium that these patients were having when they were on PCP was so intense and it lasted so long um, that they decided that this is really not the right medicine. So a little later in like 1963, they started synthesizing it and changing um, a derivative into what we now know as ketamine. And so this is like Dr. Edward Domino and um, Gunter Croson. They were like the first to start thinking about like these human like pharma pharmacy trials about this new drug of ketamine. And when they started using it in 1964, a lot of these patients, they started like describing that, oh, we're floating or I don't feel my limbs. 
So if you're a paramedic and you've ever given ketamine for pain, I want you to think about, you know, what your patients reported to you when you hit that therapeutic range, right? I've, I kind of had this joke back when I was working 911 that when I was giving ketamine for pain, one of my like fundamental hallmarks telling me that I was in that therapeutic window is if the patients are like, Ooh, I feel like I'm floating. I'd be like, okay, we've hit what we need to hit. And we don't want to get into that dissociative state, which we'll talk about in a minute. But you know, this is not anything new. Back in the 60s, they were experiencing these same types of side effects with these patients. Um, it actually led them to try to get FDA approval. And when they were getting FDA approval, they were trying to describe what the drug was doing. And so they went to the FDA and they're like, hey, uh, this drug makes people feel like they're dreaming. And the FDA didn't love that because it wasn't a very scientific term. So in kind of a, in a cool turn of events, uh, that Dr. Domino, he wrote this article taming the tiger, taming the ketamine tiger. And he was explaining to his wife, actually, of all people, like many of us do, we come home, we talk about work. He's explaining, he's like, yeah, so I'm trying to get this drug approved. Um, I, I went to the FDA and I said dreaming and they wouldn't accept it. And so she's like, well, have you thought about the term dissociative anesthetic? And that's really what we call it today. And so props to Dr. Domino's wife for coming up with that because that's what ultimately allowed the FDA to approve this medication. And in 1970, the FDA is like, all right, let's start using this. This makes sense. Dissociative anesthetic. I like that. So in 1973, the DEA comes out with these schedule classifications of different potentials for abuse of medications and narcotics. You probably know about this from the classic example of marijuana being listed as a schedule one drug, meaning that has a high potential for abuse and it doesn't have any accepted medical uses. And that was a really big problem for a long time because with a schedule one drug, you can't even research it to come up with the medical classification for making the case to move it into a different category. I think we've all seen um, over the last few years, we've kind of we've kind of turned the corner on that. But so anyway, so ketamine comes in, they classify it as a schedule three, which is basically like moderate to low potential. And it's usually, you know, the psychedelics are placed in there with some psychological dependence. Um, so like anabolic steroids, testosterone, ketamine, they're all kind of lumped into this category. Um, so. We move fast forward a little bit and ketamine kind of has a foot in both worlds, has a foot in the treatment of human patients and it has a foot in the world of, of treating um, animals through the veterinary side of medicine. And this guy, David Lodge, in 1982, starts to figure out what the actual uh, mechanism the, of action behind the med is. So up to this point, we know it works. We know it's a dissociative anesthetic. We know it relieves pain and causes sedation, depending on the dose that you're giving, which we'll talk about later. But they don't really know, like, physiologically what's happening inside the body when we're administering this med. So David Lodge comes along and he realizes that ketamine is antagonistic to this N-methyl D-aspartate, um, the NMDA receptors, which is what most people kind of refer it to. And these are found in like the thalmocortical region, the dorsal horns of the spine. And basically what they do um, is the messages are going to be transmitted from nerve endings up into the brain through these NMDA receptors. And they kind of excite this neurotransmitter of glutamate and aspartate, um, and, and it sends it to the cortex and the brain for interpretation. So it's basically like receiving messages. And what's unique about ketamine is it can block the transmission of those messages. And this can interrupt like visual, auditory, proprioceptive, and painful stimuli. So 
One of the unique things about ketamine, and I don't know many other medicines that do this, is that when you give a catatonic state of ketamine, so you give enough medicine to dissociate to actually cause the separation of what messages are being sent and what messages are being received, it causes the patient to, like, um, they can the eyes are going to be open. Um, they might be able to move and breathe spontaneously to a certain degree, but the patient themselves is disconnected from the environment. So the dissociation is that, you know, you can't make any, uh, decisions about what you're going to be doing, but the autonomic systems are going to continue to operate. So you still have a respiratory drive for the most part. You still are going to be able, you know, you might be able to move a little bit, um, but you won't be able to process and make, uh, responsive decisions to your surroundings. So, uh, some other things that it, it kind of does that they figured out is it increases the catecholamine responses. It, it can increase dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine, and it inhibits their reuptake. So it keeps it in the system, and it's going to allow for that like sympathetic, uh, sympathetic nervous system to be stimulated. And that's going to be really important when we start talking about um, induction and rapid uh, sequence induction or um, rapid sequence intubation because Ketamine has a unique property of in patients who do not have a catecholamine depletion, it can preserve some of that um, hemodynamics. So you're not going to see the precipitous drop that you might see if you use like propofol or um, benzodiazepines or something that's going to that's going to kind of relax that rest and digest and stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system. Um, you're going to see a little bit of a preservation of hemodynamics, which as you can imagine, in our, you know, our uh, hemodynamic sensitive patients like trauma patients, we, we actually really do care about that. But that's not a hard and fast rule. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit here. Um, it also interacts with the monoamine receptors, like mostly serotonin, and that's going to help uh, when we use ketamine for depression, which you may or may not know that, that this is being used for PTSD and depression. Um, and mostly it's because it, it does have an effect on the serotonin. That's that's the mechanism that's helping us. And then ultimately at the end, it gets metabolized through the liver, which can be important as you start thinking about which medicines you're going to select for which patients, um, because it's important to know kind of how they're processed and eliminated for sure. So some interesting like cases that this has been used in is in 1976, there was a big earthquake in Guatemala and they had to do a ton of surgeries on a ton of different patients. I think it was about 150 patients over 36 hours and every single one of them received ketamine. And in the environment like Guatemala with that many patients getting that many surgeries, they just don't have enough equipment to monitor every patient in like a PACU, like a post anesthesiology care unit. They, they, they can't hook them up to a monitor and check their caponography and oxygenation and blood pressure. They just don't have the ability to do that in that type of setting with disaster medicine, but they perform all these surgeries and they really don't have any problems because they're able to just be observed. Because like I said before, you have that dissociation, but it's preserving the autonomic function. So you're still getting respiratory drive, you're still getting oxygenation. And usually something really simple, like just opening the airway is going to solve any issues that you do have. Um, so that's definitely like um, a case where you can see that this this can be advantageous. Whereas if you were to use something like propofol or Presidex or um, fentanyl or midazolam or any of those other medicines, they can have some bigger complications than we generally see with ketamine. Another uh, kind of anecdotal experiential thing I've had on the ambulance, especially when I was working on one, is is using ketamine for patients who are already receiving large amounts of opiates, especially when they're not effective. So I always think of like cancer patients are a good example. 
And for a long time, I couldn't exactly tell you the reason why it was working so well. I just know that I would go to these patients that were on these high, high doses of opiates all day long, and they were in this really uncomfortable chronic pain. I remember a guy um, having pancreatic cancer that was just totally uncomfortable all the time. And every time we go to him, you know, we would put him on a ketamine infusion for pain, and he would almost get to complete relief. And I never really understood the mechanism behind it. And then when I was reviewing this article, they talk about this uh, concept of the wind-up effect. Basically what it is is when like a damaged nerve, something, it could be damaged by, you know, like post-therapeutic, it could be chronic pain, cancer pain, um, post-surgery pain after someone gets something amputated. But they basically they have this signal that's being sent from damaged uh, afferent nerve fibers and the messages get really stacked up and then they all they all enter the brain at the same time. And that's called the wind-up effect. And it's really common in areas where those nerves are damaged. So this, this medication of ketamine is going to actually allow for that message to be stopped or slowed down. They're going to be able to separate the messages coming in from the messages the brain is actually responding to. Um, and so I would encourage you, if you are going to these patients that are unmanaged on their opiate regimen, if it's not working, I have a saying that I always like to tell, um, you know, my partner when I'm, when I'm working is sometimes you have to stop throwing haymakers and you got to start firing off combinations. You got to try something different. You got to move away from just, you know, fentanyl boluses and start thinking about what other adjuncts do we have to try to address, you know, the, the, the pain that they're going through for sure. So, um, other things we need to be careful of when we're administering ketamine is, um, if you're administering intravenously, this really, you need to control the rate that it's being administered. So they have found some cases where when you're pushing this faster than, you know, 30 to 60 seconds, you're going to start to see potential complications like apnea. You might see um, respiratory depression. You might see this hypersalivation and, and pushing it a little bit slower and controlled is probably going to help with that. Same thing's true when you're giving this for pain dosing. You really don't want to be giving this any faster than 10 minutes or so because um, they've reported a high incidence of nausea and headaches um, and people feeling uh, dissociated, so getting pretty agitated pretty quickly. And a lot of that has to do with not only the dose, but the rate that you're administering it. I've always had the best luck when you either mix it in a 50 bag or a hundred bag and drip it in over 10 to 15 minutes, or if you actually put it on an infusion pump and send it in, it also gives you the ability when you hit that dissociative range or you start to get close to it. Say your patient's like, Oh, I feel like I'm floating. I can't feel my arms and legs. You can shut it off. Whereas if you just administer it all on a bolus or you push it, um, it's once it's in, it's in, I mean, there's no way, there's no counter agent where you can reverse it and take it back and bring them back down to that therapeutic range. You're really stuck in that uncomfortable situation. So if they start to get symptoms and you can shut it off before the rest of that medicine actually gets in there and loads them up, um, that's obviously going to be advantageous than kind of trying to chase it down later or unfortunately having to push them deeper um, into ketamine to try to get out of that dissociative range, which is not always ideal. So uh, when we give it intramuscular, which is what we would do for sedation, we'll talk about dosing in a second. Um, usually it occurs within like three to four minutes. So unfortunately, in my previous job, there was a lot of situations where we would go to a patient who was unsafe to themselves or others and couldn't be managed by any other means. And we were forced to provide intramuscular sedation using ketamine. And it, it is a really effective drug and it is really fast onset. And I do like that it preserves the respiratory drive. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about a case in a minute here about why we need to be super careful about that. Um, 
another thing uh, to always remember is that if you're administering ketamine, you may dissociate that person. And even though ketamine alone isn't going to cause a reduction in the respiratory drive, if it's a polypharmacy overdose or they have high amounts of alcohol in their bloodstream, when you administer ketamine, those other drugs may start to have a synergistic effect. So it may not be the ketamine necessarily that's causing the respiratory depression, but if you provide that uh, dissociative dose and they're really intoxicated, they may start to have some airway compromise. So just be aware that polypharmacy and ETOH, you know, alcohol being mixed with ketamine is always a problem. Um, and you should really be prepared to get aggressive relatively quickly, especially if you're fully dissociating them for sure. So um, other things that are kind of interesting in the world of medicine around ketamine is this idea of using ketamine pre-surgery. Uh, it's not something we see in EMS necessarily, but the mechanism is pretty interesting. I thought I'd just touch on it really quick. So they basically, um, they did this case report and they showed that if patients get a single dose of ketamine using 0.15 milligrams per kilogram before the surgery, um, that they consumed about 50% less morphine after the surgery, and they took longer to request their first pain dose once they got out of surgery. And the idea that they think is behind this is that the ketamine, by administering that and affecting um, those M NMDA receptors, the antagonist, it actually prevents the memory of pain. So even before the surgeon causes any pain, if they administer this ketamine, it can kind of prevent the ability of the body to retain as much memory of that event, which then provides them with the opportunity to have a little bit of less care in the PACU, which I think is pretty entertaining. I'm not sure of many other drugs that we're able to do that with, which is pretty cool. Um, and obviously ketamine is advantageous for sedation in general, both in transport and in, in hospital, because it's one of the only meds that is providing both pain control and sedation at the same time. It has some interesting side effects as well, too, like um, the sympath uh, sympathetic nervous system response, which we talked about, that catecholamine surge um, can be helpful to us. It also is a bronchodilator. So if you have a patient in you know, COPD or status somaticus, um, they're actually administering this medication um, both as an infusion and as an administration just to try to open up those bronchioles, which is pretty unique for an induction medication um, and can definitely be helpful for sure. We talked about that idea of the of the depression and giving ketamine to try to relieve some of those like PTSD and depression symptoms. And it's a monoamine reuptake inhibitor and basically increases the serotonin levels. So even a single injection of this um, has led to an improvement in the uh, psychological patient's depression uh, for like up to a week at a time which is pretty interesting. And I think you're seeing more and more clinics using things like ketamine to try to combat depression and PTSD. And it's worth noting, this isn't necessarily 100% um, FDA approved right now. Most places are using a derivative of it called esketamine, esketamine. Um, and that's, that's something where um, some clinics are doing that a little bit more liberally as, um, as like a psychedelic trip. And some of them are doing it more therapeutically where there's actually like a counselor or a physician nurse in the room with them, titrating that medicine, um, attempting to try to get the most therapeutic relief they can. And, and it's pretty interesting. They've had a huge boom in these ketamine bars where they're administering medicines for psychological reasons, um, which is pretty entertaining because um, it's, it's not something that I think they were originally thinking of in, back in the 60s and 70s when they were developing this medicine. 
So we talked about this idea of like the catecholamine reserves. And with our trauma patients, they may have suffered insult or injury within the last few hours. And it's not generally a huge deal. Where we really need to be careful is if you have a septic patient or a patient who's been sick for a really long time, they may not have a lot of uh, those dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine um, neurotransmitters left in their body. And we're kind of relying on that to maintain those hemodynamics. So if you have a really sick septic patient and you start to administer ketamine um, for induction and you have this precipitous drop in blood pressure, that's probably because even though ketamine stimulating the the um, those catecholamines, if there's none in the body anywhere, uh, there's not actually going to be that response you're looking for. And you might actually see a hypotensive drop. And most people kind of think that you never see that with ketamine, but you can see that when the, when the catecholamines are depleted. The other thing they found, um, and most ER docs know this because it's kind of their bread and butter, is this concept of hypersalivation. So like a large amount of saliva being produced after administration of ketamine, which you could imagine if you're trying to do the endotracheal intubation, you're trying to place a tube in their throat for for controlling their airway. Uh, It's not very helpful when it's filled with saliva. And they found a correlation between alcohol ingestion, high levels of alcohol ingestion and ketamine administration. So those patients that are coming in that are severely obtunded um, that need airway control and airway maintenance and receive ketamine, you know, just being prepared, having your suction ready, making sure you understand that that's definitely something um, that can that can happen. We talked a little bit before about this presentation that patients have after being sedated with ketamine or dissociated with ketamine, and they look a little bit different. It's not like when you give them propofol or um, midazolam and they go to sleep and they're resting comfortably. Sometimes the patients that have a ketamine dissociation look very different. So, um, and this can be disturbing to bystanders and patients, family members. So if you're going to do this, you know, do what you have to do to take care of the patient, but also don't be afraid to kind of walk the family through why why it's okay. Um, you know, these patients can have their eyes open. They might see tears in the eyes. They might hear them, you know, moaning and they might fear that, uh, the, their loved one or the, the patient is hurting. And it's, it's not that they are, it's that that dissociation between the cortex and the limbic system isn't intact. So their brain really doesn't have any ability to control those autonomic responses. And I think kind of explaining that can be important to help people, um, you know, feel, feel comfortable with knowing that that patient is safe. And just kind of closing out that article there, just remember that, you know, ketamine is, is the most widely used anesthetic in the world and is super well known for its safety and low cost. So I'm going to take you through, um, a little bit about ketamine that how it's used here. And then a little bit about an incident that happened over in Colorado and why that might be a little bit dangerous. But just remember that this is the most widely used anesthetic in the world and it's super well known for its safety and it's relatively low cost. Um, it can be a great med definitely, um, if it's used correctly. So around here, usually what you'll see it be used for is uh, pain and sedation, um, as well as intubation, which is kind of tied along with sedation. That's kind of the the places that we're going to see it. Um, And there's a couple different 
types of doses that we can see. So traditionally with pain, what you're gonna see is anywhere from 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. And, and that seems to work pretty well. I found in my practice that 0.2 seems to work really well for everyone. Some protocols you'll see 0.25 milligrams per kilogram with a consideration for elderly or sensitive patients of 0.15. Um, what I would say is remember, once it's in, you can't take it back. So I've never really had an issue with 0.2 per kilogram over 15 minutes on the pump. That seems to be kind of the magic number um, in my practice, but I, I can't tell you that that's rooted in science. I just know it's within range. And I had a chance to chat with um, Kyle DeWitt, one of the great pharmacists up at UBM, and that's kind of their practice as well. And I had a lot of luck um, doing it that way for me personally. Just remember, if they feel like they're floating, you know, and they can't feel their limbs, you know, that's, that's enough. You've hit what you want to hit. And if their pain goes away, that's what we're looking for. We don't need to, you know, make them confused and, and agitated or uncomfortable because it's difficult to come back from. As far as sedation and induction goes, generally speaking, you're seeing between like one to two milligrams per kilogram, depending on what you're trying to do. And this is a really helpful drug for painful procedures. You'll see this done a lot in orthopedics because they're able to administer the medicine, do what they need to do to realign the bones or make a repair or suture something. Um, and then within, you know, you know, an hour or so, these patients are going to be coming back to their baseline and sometimes even get discharged same day, whereas those other medications may have some longer effects. So usually one to two milligrams per kilogram is a, is a pretty good range. One of the really interesting things I learned on a podcast recently, shout out to heavy lies, the helmet is this concept of uh, a movement towards when you're using paralytics and uh, the induction agent, the sedative, they talk about with your really, really critically ill patients who are really sick and can't tolerate large doses of sedation. They're actually talking about um, having the sedation and doubling the paralytic. And the research behind that is that um, if they are that obtunded and they are that hypotensive and already altered because of the condition they're in, um, having the sedation may provide a little bit of a safer margin if you have a drop in blood pressure, especially if they're catecholamine depleted and they're already not necessarily, you know, alert and oriented times four right there with you. They're already somewhat obtunded from the injury itself. So you just need to kind of tip them over the edge a little bit to make them um, not remember that. And then by doubling the paralytic, you know, something like rocaronium, it's dose dependent. So the more medicine you give, the quicker it'll have for an onset and, and the longer it'll last. So um, that's just a strategy that some ERs are thinking about to try to give them the best chance to get what they need out of the patient you know, physiologically by administering the medicines. Cause the last thing you want to do is, you know, put them in a cardiac arrest, um, before we intubate. And Dr. George is a great, is a great one that always, you know, preaches that we need to resuscitate before we're intubating. You know, we need to make sure that we're taking care of our patients and putting them in a position where they can tolerate, um, that type of medicine administration. Cause it can definitely go sideways pretty quick. And then the last, um, kind of dosing range that we talk about is just like four milligrams per kilogram intramuscular. And that's for those patients that where we need sedation or we need dissociation relatively quickly. Remember, it's about three to four minutes for onset, which seems pretty true. Just thinking back at my own practice and it does work really well. And it is nice when um, they don't deoxygenate and they don't have any apneic periods and you can, you know, relax and put them on the monitoring and take them safely where they need to go. It's, it's one of the medications that you you are able to use that does do that. This doesn't, doesn't always go 
perfectly though. And I want to share with you a case that is pretty high profile that um, I'm sure you're aware of. It's the Elijah McLean case. It's out of Aurora, Colorado, back from August 2019. And basically what happens is this individual is walking home at night. Somebody calls the police department because they feel that this individual is suspicious. Um, he's a 23-year-old guy. The police department shows up. There's an altercation. They place him in a chokehold, apply carotid pressure. He becomes unresponsive. They call the EMS crew. Paramedics show up. They inject him with ketamine. Um, they didn't assess his vital signs. They didn't talk to him and they get to the hospital and he's in cardiac arrest. And I think one of the things I want to emphasize here is there's a lot of problems with this. And I was really careful when this came out because when I was on the ambulance, this is something that made its way over to where I was working. And there's big discussion both with um, city leadership and medical direction and um, administration leadership about how to handle this. And there's some there's some glaring errors right off the bat. So as a medical provider, you never make a decision based off of someone who's not a medical provider, who's not credentialed and trained and certified in that realm. So you need to make your own assessment. You need to determine, you know, whether that's the appropriate action or not. And I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback, but the report says that this individual is unresponsive and he was in handcuffs. Um, and, and we want to make sure that, you know, if that's already happened, there's, there's not really huge indication for ketamine to be administered at that point. Ketamine is really when the situation cannot be controlled by other means and there's imminent harm to the patient or others. Um, and you want to make sure that you're always placing that at the top of your, your, your forefront of your mind when you're making these decisions and the medical provider administering the ketamine should have a medical indication for why they're making that decision, some sort of, you know, unsafe, you know, situation or, you know, the patient is in a profound lactic acidosis from, you know, delirium with agitation, which is the new term now and can't be controlled by other means. And leaving them in that state would be more dangerous than sedating them and allowing them to relax and controlling um, their vital signs to a place where it's going to be therapeutic for them. The other piece is that, if you ever administer any sedation of any kind to any patient, you own that patient. You have changed the dynamic by administering a medication that is changing the fundamental way their body is operating and anything, you know, from uh, a pressure injury or from a oxygenation injury, um, you are responsible for. So you have to monitor them. And I used to always make sure, you know, to tell the crews I was working with, hey, you know, we're going to do this. But as soon as they're dissociated in that three to four minutes, you know, the cuffs need to come off or the cuffs need to be relocated so they're not sitting on their hands because these patients are not going to be able to tell you if they're uncomfortable. They're not going to be able to tell you if they're suffering another injury because they're going to be dissociated. So you have to protect them from that. You have to secure their airway. And that may be up to and including, um, intubation. And I've always told providers that I've worked with, you should not be administering dissociative ketamine unless you are 100% prepared to take their airway. That, that should be in your head that I'm going to intubate this patient if they cannot ventilate and oxygenate on their own without it. That You have to think of those two together. They need to be on end title. You need a finger stick. You need temperature management. You need blood pressure. Um, you need oxygenation, heart rate, EKG monitoring. You need to do the whole, what we used to call the works. You need to do all of that because you own them now. If you make that decision, you have to make sure that there's nothing else at play that you're missing. That's your responsibility for sure. 
So another thing I want to talk about is um, some complications with ketamine mixing. So a lot of people don't know this, but when you move into like the transport environment or ICU work or in hospital work, you end up running into these like compatibility errors, which is really new for me because when I was working in 911, it was, you know, you flush and then you push a med and then you flush and it's all good. You don't have to worry about anything else. But now where I'm working, you might have a couple different medicines all going into the same patient. You might only have one or two IV sites and you have to really start thinking about what's going to happen when you mix these medicines. So a really common one, even at the EMS level, is just remember that like ketamine and lactated ringers are not compatible. A lot of people are like, oh, well, it's probably just not studied. No, it's it's literally been studied and it is not compatible. You can't mix ketamine and lactated ringers. So if that's your push line and you're using ketamine, you can't put the two of those together. Other things are like Presidex, heparin, bicarbonate, um, sodium bicarbonate. These are not compatible with ketamine. So you want to really think about where you're putting this medicine and what interactions you might have because you can definitely run into some problems. And the last thing you want is you know to be trying to help somebody and giving them some pain meds and all of a sudden you have precipitation of the lung or some other condition that's going to cause a problem. So you just want to be careful of that. And then finally, I just kind of want to talk about the future of ketamine. Um, Florida is really interested in the use of ketamine and it's in, it's sprinkled all over their protocols. And if you go down and you read anything about that, they're super, super into ketamine. We had an opportunity to go to Orlando last year at EMS World and the um, the fire department chronicles guy was the keynote speaker and he had a pretty funny talk just about how much Florida loves ketamine. And one of the recent studies that just came out that Peter Hantevi was, um, was part of is this Palm beach County fire rescue study on refractory epilepsy. So there's been a lot of talk about whether ketamine has a role in seizure management or not. And this Palm Beach County fire rescue study basically shows that um, with patients who have refractory epilepsy after midazolam administration, so Versed, they're getting Versed for um, seizures and it's not stopping the seizure. They started uh, bolusing ketamine and the ketamine resolved in 93% of the cases, which is a pretty darn good number if you ask me. And basically what they do there is... If this is happening, you reach your max dose of midazolam and you're still having seizure activity, they basically do one milligram per kilogram infusion in a, in a hundred bag of saline using a 10 drop set. They open it wide open and they drip it in. And like I said, 93% of cases, they had complete cessation of all of the seizure activity. And in less than 13%, they saw a episode of hypoxia. So and that was easily rectified with airway, simple airway maneuvers like airway management or bag valve mass ventilation, which kind of um, immediately caused the um, the return of, of the respiratory drive. So like I said before, if you administer these ketamine drugs, you have to be prepared to make those small adjustments and treat the things you're seeing. So. I hope this was interesting. Even if you haven't um, worked in the medical field, I hope you kind of got your mind a little bit around what ketamine is used for, a little bit about the history and a little bit about maybe where it's going. If you are in the medical field, I hope that this wasn't a waste of time. I hope there was at least one or two things in this uh, review that you picked up on that you didn't know. Um, I will put the article citations in the show notes so you can kind of see where some of this information comes from. Um, and I definitely encourage you to keep learning. And if there's anything else um, we can do for you over at the Go321 podcast, please let me know. Um, I hope you're enjoying it um, and, and I hope that you guys are staying safe out there.